0: Welcome to Renegade Naturalist Radio with Dr. Dan Botkin, real stories and real science about nature and our changing environment. Dan's guest today is best-selling author and correspondent Charles C. Mann. Mann has spent most of his career as a writer working to publicize the ecological factors that have shaped the course of human history. Good morning. This is Dan Botkin. I'm honored today to be able to interview Charles Mann, who is an author of some of the books about the environment that I like the best. The one I became aware of first was Noah's Choice, The Future of Endangered Species. But it was a really fascinating discussion about the conflict between an endangered earthworm and building a road to help an Indian tribe. I think that was quite a controversial book. And then he wrote 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. And then 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created. Welcome, Charles. I'm delighted to have you on the program. I'm delighted to be speaking with you, sir. Charles, in 1493, you make this really remarkable assertion and discuss it well about globalization and ecological globalization and uh, what you call Columbus's major contribution. I know 1493 has been very successful, but I still think there's a lot of people that aren't aware of this fascinating thesis that you have. So just talk a little bit about what you mean by the ecological globalization and Columbus's major contribution.
1: Well, this is building really on the ideas of people these wonderful environmental historians like Alfred Crosby and uh John John McNeil and a whole slew of others and they've argued, um, I think correctly, that Columbus's voyage is a real watershed not only in human history, but in ecological history. And the reason is that prior to fourteen ninety two, for tens of millions of years, the eastern hemisphere and the western hemisphere were almost completely separate. And as a result, the Ecosystems in those um, two hemispheres went on completely separate or almost completely separate paths of development. And Columbus brought together these two different ecological worlds with a tremendous collision. And uh, in effect, uh, as I said, he recreated Pangea. He he recreated the single giant landmass that existed 200 million years ago. And huge numbers of creatures from over there came over here. Huge numbers of creatures from over here went over there. And this ecological convulsion was really an enormous event in the history of life, probably the biggest one since the death of the dinosaurs, and represents also a giant change in human history because underlying many of the developments in our own history is this ecological component.
0: I think that's where it becomes even more fascinating because (laughs) you point out so many interesting cases where... uh, Who gets to rule and which country turns out to be most important uh, seems to depend as much on these inadvertent uh, movements of species as on anything else, and uh, so it really has had a huge effect on human history, which brings me close to one of my own ideas that I like to talk about is that people are really part of the environment and we're deeply connected to it but anyway you might give a couple examples of how that where that happened
1: well a very big and uh, simple one is the bringing the potato which was uh, developed by indian peoples over thousands of years to europe and it so, so happens that the stretch of europe that goes roughly from ireland to ukraine is rather ideally suited to the cultivation of potatoes and when the potatoes come in because of the way potatoes are potatoes are tubers, and they grow in a, in a quite different way from cereals like wheat and maize and rice. Those plants you know, ex- essentially exist in tall, thin stalks with a good part up high in the air. And so if you're a particularly successful wheat farmer or rice farmer and you have a heavy load of grain, the plant lodges, as, as they call it, or falls over to fatal result. And so you're actually penalized. There's, there's limits there um, to how much that you can grow. And In recent years, in recent decades, uh, you know, plant breeders have tried to overcome them, but there's still what they call a harvest index that can't be surpassed without structural damage to the plant. Tubers and, uh, and other kind of root crops like that grow underground, and so they can be vastly um, more, pro- more productive. And when the potato came, The average European farmer in a place like England was able to get roughly four times as much dry food matter from from the potato as they were from an acre of potatoes as they were from an acre of wheat or barley or or millet or whatever it was that they were were growing. And the consequences were enormous. Europe had been in what social scientists call the Malthusian trap for several centuries at that point at least. And that is that any kind of increase in production was immediately canceled out by an increase in, in, in population and the general level of misery remain the same. Suddenly, with the arrival of potatoes, you have this enormous increase in the in the food supply. And the result is that hunger, which has been a constant presence in Europe for centuries, virtually disappears. All these governments become much more stable. The population rises, and they now have the wherewithal to go out and start conquering other people. And I
0: can so, add yeah. a fact about potatoes that you don't have, which I... In your in your book, which I think you'll find is fun, uh, I did this calculation a while ago. It turns out that you know potatoes don't seem to be high in protein, but they're so productive that a an acre of potato yields more protein than an acre of any other standard agricultural crop. It's not because they're high in percentage of protein; it's because they're just so darn productive.
1: That's a wonderful st- statistic, and you're right. I wish I knew for my book because the, uh, the the astounding thing is, in a place like Ireland, which was desperately poor, <laughs> people were able to eat balanced meals, you know, nutritionally balanced meals that consisted entirely of potatoes and milk. And 40 percent of the population in Ireland ate nothing, no solid food other than potatoes, and yet the place was able to stand on its own two feet in the 17th and 18th century for the first time in Irish history.
0: Will you also make a point about uh, possibly one of the Chinese dynasties uh, either fell because of our, there was a large effect of this kind of globalization, right? Would you like to just talk about that? Um,
1: I I think it's actually um, (laughs) rather clear that the, the impacts, you know, it, 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 it's not as if when we're talking about the potato that you know wise rulers in Europe consciously you know promulgated this although towards the end some of them some of them did with the idea that this would increase state power and make it possible for them to engage in imperialist ventures they they just happened to win from the kind of changes we're talking about the chinese more or less happened to lose and from actually oddly enough from much the same mechanism you know china um, if you look at the map is a, is a place with Amazingly little water. There's no large bodies of water in, in China, and it's only got these two rivers of any size so the Yangtze and the Yellow River. And you know, the whole western half of the nation practically has no water at all. And so, as a result um, of this, the fact that they have 20% of the world's people, about 7% of the world's above ground fresh water, water control has been a very big deal in China. In fact, it's only been exacerbated by the fact that the desirable crop in China is rice, which has to be grown in swimming pools so if you think about it, the first couple thousand years of Chinese history is essentially the story of people attempting to grow rice with almost no resources for growing it and it's kind of doing an amazing job but still barely hanging on. And in the early 17th century, maize, corn, and uh, sweet potato come to China, and they're the first substantial you know, staple-type dryland crops that are um, in China. The Chinese had wheat, but it's you know kind of had to be irrigated and put in the North China Plain. Uh, sweet potato and maize can be grown in amazingly dry conditions, and so all this western expanse, which has been really little touched by the Han Chinese, is <clears throat> suddenly opened up, and they just march out west. They throw out the indigenous people there, and they start terracing huge areas and growing sweet potato and maize. And then, towards the end of the um, 18th century, they start planting regular potato as well.
0: You know, that's yeah That's one of the things that's interesting about that is that Chinese food's so common and popular in America, but you never think of going in to have sweet potatoes. Right.
1: But if you go into you know rural China, you know into these poor villages and so forth, <laughs> you get sweet potato all the time. It's kind of looked down on uh, by people in Shanghai and Beijing as you know the, the food of poor people. There's a kind of a snobbyness about it, but I think it's actually quite good They have these very spicy sweet potato stews and soups that I really like anyway. There and corn, so they're growing it in these incredible areas, places that you would never imagine anybody would grow crops. And uh, the results, unfortunately, entirely predictable, particularly in the northwest. Um, That whole area is made of this very finely silt-like, finely silted um, soil called loess, L-O-E-S-S, and uh, it has it's very erosion-prone, and so there's just enormous amounts of erosion takes place, and the result is. a series of environmental catastrophes, as erosion leads to floods which kill millions of people and completely disrupt the nation. Um, if you look at the Wikipedia list of you know, the world's worst flood disasters, I don't know, five of the top ten or something like that are 19th century, early 20th century Chinese floods where they killed millions of people, and the, result, uh, the, the numbers of floods are just absolutely incredible. And there's millions of environmental refugees, and the result is that China, which in you know at the, the time of Columbus was the world's richest, most technologically sophisticated nation, the place that Europeans are trying to get to to get all the luxury goods, becomes by the end of the 19th century a place that small groups of Europeans can you know march into and push people around.
0: It's very interesting. <clears throat> um, now, because time is marching on, I, I want to go to the second question I had. Um, You know, uh, I and my sister, too, who's very interested in uh, books about the environment. She has a Ph.D. in science education. Um, We keep looking at books about the environment. And, uh, you know, your books are really outstanding. They're very readable. They're very well-researched. In a lot of ordinary hands, they would come across as uh, academic and scholarly, but you write them in a way that makes them very accessible and appealing. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, by contrast, two of the books that strike me as what's taken hold about environment lately are uh, *A Walk in the Woods*: Rediscovering America on the Appalachian Trail by Bill Bryson, which is basically, I don't know anything about the woods, and here's what I, what, how I got messed up, and then *Wild*: From Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest. By somebody who knows nothing about the environment. Somehow, we have this anti intellectual desire. We want to read about how people screw up outdoors. But what is it that you think you do that, uh, and you might give to young writers as advice about how to write in a way that's going to work?
1: Well, um, it's a little embarrassing to be asked this question, Um, you know, because it it, it sort of is like you were saying, in in a very generous way, why are you so good? (laughs) <laughs> and so I, uh, the, the proper answer is... I'll take thanks.
0: it as a technical question. <laughs>
1: it's right. But I, I, I will tell you that um, something that I have um, talked about to young writers that seems to have struck a bell is that an awful lot of people who begin writing don't think at all about their audience. You know, some poor guy is going to have to actually read this. Um, and uh, when I do think about that, I think about my dad. My dad was a small businessman, a very smart guy, um, but he know he would come home from work and he would have something he would want to read something you know that he, he read for pleasure, he wanted to learn something he wanted to have fun with it he didn 't want to be talked down and he, so he had a big stack of newspapers and magazines and books and this kind of table that was by his favorite armchair and he 'd pick something up and if he felt like he was being talked down to or lectured or the person wasn 't uh, really interested in um, you know, giving him a good time. And by that, I don't mean kind of a good time in a dumb way. I mean, you know, taking into consideration that he, that, he, that he, my father might not be an expert in this, you know, that kind of thing. He would toss the book or magazine, what have you, into this basket that was on the corner of the room. And I always say, you know, when you're writing, your goal is to stay out of that basket. <laughs> So when I write, you know, I'm always thinking, like, am I in the basket? Am I in the basket here? I better come up with something interesting now. A, I thing.
0: Like, I, well, one thing I picked up is that you tell a lot of stories about people and individuals. And, uh, and maybe that helps by personalizing the issues. Do you think that's one of the features that keeps it so. in the basket?
1: People... Um, You know, I think it it goes right back to Aristotle, who said that there are two ways to explain a subject. If I'm remembering right, one is in terms of the subject itself, and that would be like a physics textbook, where you you you, or or a geometry textbook, where you you know start from the axioms. And the other is in terms of how people come to know about something. And um, Mm -hmm. often I'll take the tack of trying to explain something by in terms of how it came to be known.
0: That's very good. That's very, very, very interesting. We're just about out of time, Charles. It's been really great talking with you, and uh, I hope this helps your book, uh, 1493. What are you working on now?
1: I'm um, working on a, on, a, on a book that uh, I hope to be able to pick your brains on. Um, you know, it, the basic idea is that, uh, very roughly speaking, in 2050, there's going to be almost 10 billion people. And how on earth is that going to work?
0: Okay. Well, I'm available to have my brain picked. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, it's really good talking with you. Thanks so much. Good talking to you. This has been Renegade Naturalist Radio, hosted by Daniel Botkin. For more information about Dan or about his books, please go to www.danielbbotkin.com.